If you have your Bible with you, open it to the book of Galatians. We'll be in Galatians chapter 4 this morning as we continue in our verse-by-verse study through the book of Galatians. Having been in the book of Galatians for quite some time now, we are really watching as Paul's legal argument sort of unfolds as he's trying to intercept or intercede what's about to take place in this region of Galatia. He's written this letter to the churches that are surrounding this area or this region of Galatia, and he's addressing some of the concerns, and one of the concerns is many of these new Christians, these new believers from Galatia are turning towards Judaism, and they're turning away from Christ. You see, after Paul came and ministered to them and he shared the gospel with them, they believed they received the Holy Spirit But then along behind Paul came these Judaizers who told them that the gospel was good, but you needed to add something to that. You needed to to become Jewish. You needed to get circumcised. You needed to keep the Jewish law. You needed to, to do these things in order to be a good Christian. And we have watched over the last several months, Paul has adamantly defended that salvation comes through grace alone. And he's doing this, and he's done it in chapter 1 and 2. He shared with his experience of of, uh, grace and how he experienced it in his life. And chapter 3 and 4 have been this doctrinal argument that he's just laid out beautifully. Beautifully. I don't know that it could have been laid out any better. He uses the Old Testament and the Scriptures to support his doctrinal position. Every doctrinal position we have must be supported by the Scriptures. And not just in one place often. A lot of times it occurs in several places. But Paul's laying out this argument. And then last time we met, we saw that the Apostle Paul really appealed to them personally. As he's sort of winding down his legal argument, his doctrinal position, he appeals to them personally. He says, guys, remember what it was like when I first came to you. Remember how I shared Christ with you and you received the gospel. Remember that feeling that, that you had. And, and you and the Lord were connected. You were one-on-one. And now it's, you're, it's lost. You're, you're trying to then connect with God based on how you're doing and keeping the law. Paul says that's not what we should be doing. And this morning as we pick up In verse 21, he's going to begin, and he says, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But the one who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise, which things are symbolic. So Paul turns his attention in the letter, if you will, to those people who want to keep the law. He's writing to those believers in Galatia. And remember, they weren't Jewish. There was some around, but most of them were were Gentile believers who are now trying to be persuaded to turn or to become Jewish. So he writes to them directly and he says, listen, you who want to keep the law, do you hear what the law says? Do you really know what you're getting into? Because the big thing on the table that they were discussing was... Well, they felt that in order to be a good Christian, the men had to be circumcised. And Paul's saying, listen, you guys don't even understand the law. You don't know, you you want the good things that the law can bring in, but you don't understand the burden that the law brings with it. Because no longer can you just keep part of the law. If you're going to place yourself under the law, you have to keep all the law. And we've talked about this before, but I want to share with you, in this day in Galatia, the law that Paul's referring to here was the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. The the first five books, including the Ten Commandments and including the law, the Levitical law in Leviticus. That's the law that he's referring to, but it's all wrapped into one. As a Jewish person, if you say, hey, what about the law? When you say law to them, they think 
Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's the Torah. That's the first five books of the Bible. That's what they're saying that we need to now live by. And Paul says, listen, you guys don't even know the burden that you're placing yourself under. You don't even understand, you you don't even get it on why you're doing this. He says, let me illustrate it to you. Let me give you an allegory. Let Let me share with you something from the law to try to convince you. And by the way, he's doing this because he doesn't feel that he's convinced them to this point. Let me share something with you. And he says in verse 22, for it is written. That is a great way to start any doctrinal argument that you're going to have with any of your friends or family members. You see, it's not about what we think. It's about what is written. It's about what the Bible says. I can, I, I've run across many people in life who want to argue a position. Then I'll ask them, well, where do you find that in the Bible? Well, I don't know, but I know it's in there. Well, then we're done talking. Show me where it's written. At least tell me where it's written. At least quote exactly what's written. And what I found a lot of times is that I talk to them, they know that they're, they're partially right. They've got part of it right. They've, they've got the first part of the verse right, but they've missed the second part of the verse. I love Paul's arguments because he always goes back to, for it is written. Let me take you back to the beginning is what he's saying. And he takes them back. For it is written, Abraham, Abraham had two sons. Abraham had two sons. The one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise, which things are symbolic. So the Apostle Paul says, listen, it's been written that Abraham, and by the way, Abraham was the father of the Jews. Abraham had two sons. One was by a bondwoman, one was by a free woman. One, these, both of these sons have symbolism that Paul says, I want to reveal this to you now. Now, I would always caution you when you go back to the Old Testament or go to the Scriptures to find your own symbolism. Be careful when you do that. We always take the Scriptures for what they say literally, but oftentimes we will see that the Scriptures of the Old Testament will paint a picture or, be, be, or, or show us what's coming up in the New Testament. So Paul says, listen, He mentions just a verse or two about Abraham. And he assumes they have some knowledge on who Abraham was. And I'm going to kind of review for you in case you're not sure sure who Abraham was. But Abraham was a man at at about age 75. He lived in the the land of the Chaldeans, in the the land of Ur. At at about the age of 75, he was a pagan worshiping man. The whole family, the whole culture would have been about that time. But at about 75 years old, the Lord came to Abraham and he said, Abraham... I want you to pack up your stuff. I want you to pack up your family. And I want you to move. And I want you to go to a land that I'll tell you. He didn't tell him where he wanted to go. He said, just pack up and go. Pack up by faith and just go. So Abraham did exactly what the Lord had said. He packs up. He goes by faith. And the Lord had told Abraham, I'm going to make you a father of great nations. A father of many nations. Now at this time, his name wasn't Abraham yet. It was Abram. So Abram packs up and he goes and does exactly what the Lord does, what what the Lord wants him to do. So he goes on his way and he gets into the land of Canaan. Now, prior to getting there, the Lord had made a promise to Abraham. The Lord had said to Abraham, I'm going to give you a son. I'm going to give you a son. Remember his age. He's 75 years old. He's 75 years old. He comes to the land of Canaan and he still has no son. As he comes into the land of Canaan, 
Well, there's a famine in the land. He goes down into the land of Egypt to try to find food. When he comes into the land of Egypt, he realizes, my wife is beautiful. And he says to his wife, listen, honey, when we go into the land of Egypt, don't tell them you're my husband. Because then they're going to kill me and they're going to take you to be the wife of one, be one of Pharaoh's wives. So just tell them you're my sister, he says. Tell them you're my sister. So exactly what he thought would happen would happen. He goes into the land of Egypt. His wife was beautiful. She gets taken and brought towards the Pharaoh. Uh, Abraham gets blessed because of his beautiful sister. As part of his blessing, he receives maidservants. He receives livestock. He receives gifts. But the Lord eventually shows Pharaoh, hey, that's not his sister. That's his wife. So Pharaoh says, fine, go. Take your stuff and get out. So they leave. Now here they are at the age of 85. They're back into the land of Canaan. But there's still a problem. They don't have the baby that's been promised to them yet. They haven't been given the son. It's been 10 years. Have you ever waited for a promise of the Lord? It can take a while sometimes. It can take a long time. It's been 10 years since, 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 the, you know, since the promise happened at this point. Now, it, Abraham is now 85, and he's getting a little impatient. Sarah's getting a little impatient. She's burdened by the fact that she doesn't have children, and it's getting to the point where, well, she's getting to the age where she can't have children anymore. She might have already passed that point. So she comes up with this idea. She says, listen, Abram, I've got this girl, Hagar, a servant girl to me. I got her down in Egypt. Why don't you just take her? Why don't you just marry her? And you can have relations with her. And then the child that she bears will consider that mine. And that's how we can, the Lord's going to bless us. Well, what do you think of that plan? Abraham goes, okay. All right. Sounds like a good plan to me. But it wasn't God's plan. Abraham and Hagar, the maidservant of Sarah, get together and they have a son. And his name is Ishmael. Ishmael. Another, I don't know, 10 years, almost a little more, little more than 10 years go by. God speaks to Abraham again and says, you're going to have a son. This time Abraham laughs. God, I can't have a son. I'm way past the age of having a son. I'm too old to have a son. Sarah hears about it and she laughs. I'm too old to have a son, she says. We're past the age of childbearing. We can't do it. So when Abraham is 99 years old, God shows up and speaks to him again and says, you're going to have that son. I think it's impossible. Absolutely impossible. Remember the promise I made to you, Abraham. Remember the promise of the son? He's coming. Lord, just take Ishmael. Just take Ishmael. Let him be my son. Let him be the one that, and and God says, no way. He doesn't say no way. He says no. I say no way. God says, no, you're crazy. We're not doing that. I told you, I promised you a son through Sarah, and it's going to happen. And at the ripe old age of 100, which would make Sarah probably some, they would, scholars would suggest about 90 years old, she gives birth to a son, and rightfully named Isaac. Isaac means laughter, because they were laughing at how old they were to have a child. So she gives birth to the son Isaac. They're rejoicing. But at this point, Ishmael is a teenager. And now there's some competition in the house. Now there's some competition going on. 
When Isaac was three years old, which is the time they would wean the baby, and the baby would begin to begin eating solid foods, when Isaac was three years old, they would throw a party for the child because it was sort of his, his not a coming of age party, but it was the idea that he's no longer a baby. He's now moving into that young, young man, you know, toddler phase. He's, he's, he's getting older. He's, he's taken the step in life. Well, when that happens, during that custom of them to throw the party or that celebration, Ishmael begins to mock Isaac because Ishmael is now threatened by Isaac. So he begins to mock him. So Sarah says, listen, get rid of him. Throw him out. Abraham says, he's my son. I realize there's a problem, but he's still my son. And the Lord shows up to Abraham again and says, do what your wife says. So he does. He sends them them off. Now, I I share that whole story because on the surface, it appears to be nothing more than a, a family problem or a tale of family issues. But Paul here is showing us beneath the surface and he's saying, listen, there's a tremendous spiritual thing that we need to learn here. There's something taking place here. And that's what, when he says, back to the book of Galatians, when he says, for it is written, Abraham had two sons, that's who he's talking about, Ishmael and Isaac. Those are the two sons he's talking about. And here's what it, here's what it represents. Ishmael was a son of the flesh. Isaac was a son of promise. Ishmael came about because they tried to make God's will happen in their flesh. Isaac was the son that God said, I will give you, just, it's okay, just be patient. Now, the last thing you want in any of your lives is an Ishmael. I don't mean any kids. I mean, you don't want to make God's will happen in the flesh. That's what Abraham and Sarah tried to do. Today, the descendants of Ishmael and the descendants of Isaac are at war. Do you realize that? Still today. Do you realize the Muslims call Abraham their father through Ishmael. The Jews call Abraham their father through Isaac. And today in the Middle East, they're battling back and forth. Some have even suggested that the Arab people are descendants of Ishmael. That's depending on who you read and what you believe. But what we do know is the Muslims claim Ishmael as their link to Abraham. So we really do have a a man who becomes a father of many nations, Many nations as it spreads out. But these two young men, or these two, these two people, Ishmael and Isaac, are going to grow up. And, they, and Paul is saying, listen, these two men represent two things. One re- represents bondage. One represents promise. One is born in the flesh. One is going to be born through promise. And he goes on. And he says these two men also represent two covenants. Two covenants that God made. Look, keep reading them together with me. Verse 23. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through the promise. Which things are symbolic? For these are the two covenants. The one from Mount Sinai which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But... The second covenant, Jerusalem above, is free, which is the mother of us all. So what Paul's saying is, listen, these two men, these two children of Abraham, they represent the two covenants that God has made with man. Now notice there's only two. Paul's not recognizing any other covenant. He's not recognizing anything anybody else has come up with. He said there's two covenants that God has made with man. 
One came under the law, and one came through Jesus Christ. That's what he's ultimately going to come down to. And he's going to ultimately tell them, listen, you that have come to salvation through Christ alone, why are you putting yourself back under the law that you've been free from? Why would you go back and do that? So he says here very clearly, but he was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh. Their flesh made the desire, made the decision to try to produce in themselves a child by, sent, by putting Hagar and Abraham together. And the free woman, Isaac, was born as a promise. Isaac came as a promise. Remember, God said to Abraham and Sarah, you're going to have a child. And it, it was a promise that was fulfilled. It, it, they were not able to do that on their own. I'm sure over the number of years that they were together, they tried to have children many, many times. And each time it failed. It wasn't until they got past the point of having children to where they laughed at the promise of God that God said, let me show you what I can do. Let me show you who I am. You see, you're looking at life through your physical abilities and you laugh when I say I want to do something. Oh, we can be guilty of that, can't we? We always look at what we can accomplish in our flesh, not what our God can accomplish. We always look and think, well, I could do that or I couldn't do that. But when we look at our life, do you look and say, what can God do in my life? God has the power to free us from addiction. God has the power to help us overcome sin. God has the power to help us become things that we never thought we could become. If God calls us to a certain thing, he's going to provide the things, the ability that we need to do what he's called us to do. But so often we look at our life and we say, well, I don't know that I could ever do that. I don't know. I, I don't know if I could tell my neighbor about Jesus. That would, that would make me nervous. I wouldn't know what to say. I don't know my Bible well enough. It might make me a little scared. And Can I tell you that if the Lord leads you in that way to walk across the street and talk to your neighbor about Christ, he'll also give you the words that you need to say? Certainly you need to be prepared and know in your heart how you're saved and know what you believe, but we don't have to constantly be prepared on every single thing that we might say because the Lord will provide the words that we need when he calls us to do something even though we might be uncomfortable doing it. But that's when the greatest victory happens. When I step out to follow the Lord, when I find myself doing something I never thought I could do, then it causes me to give glory back to God. Don't let, it be, don't let yourself become prideful over it. Paul's concerned for them. He's really worried about them. He said previously in verse, uh, in verse uh, 20, he said, I'd like to be present with you now and change my tone because I have doubts about you i'm really worried about you paul's saying and he's going here with his last little explanation we pick up jump down to verse 25 for this hagar is mount sinai in arabia and corresponds to jerusalem which now is and is in bondage with her children so he says listen this law came hagar and uh, ishmael are a picture of it it corresponds to jerusalem at that time jerusalem was in bondage to who to the Romans. They were in bondage to the Romans. So the very city that's supposed to be free is in bondage underneath of Roman rule. Now keep, stay with me on this because it's going to make sense when we get to the end. And he says, but the Jerusalem above, the Jerusalem above, that's free. It's free, which is the mother of us all. Paul says the Jerusalem in heaven, the Jerusalem that's above, that's not in bondage to anything. That's, that, that's freedom and it represents our salvation. The Jerusalem above is, 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 is incredible for us. It's the, place that, it's the place that we read about in Revelation chapter 21, that well, the new Jerusalem will come out of the sky. 
That's the, that represents us, and it represents our salvation of being with the Lord forever. And I want to share something with you. Notice there's only two covenants made between man and God. There's only two ways that man can relate to God. There's only two, you can, you're, right now, as you sit here this morning, you approach the Lord in one of two ways. You either approach him through legalism or the law, or you approach him through grace, through his grace. It's only one of two ways that you can approach him. If you approach him through legalism, and our, and our natural tendency is to say, why would anybody want to approach God through legalism? Why would, I, why would, why would anybody want to be legalistic? We've heard the term about Christians. They're, they're legalistic. They have certain rules and regulations they follow. Why would anybody ever, ever want to do that? Well, I want to give you a couple reasons why that could seem appealing to somebody. You see, a lot of times we fall into that legalistic mentality without realizing that we're there. But one of the reasons it could be appealing is it provides an easy-to-follow checklist for yourself. You see, I decide, I decide what my relationship with God is based on, on what I do. And then once I establish that relationship, then how I'm doing, I can just go back to my checklist and see how I'm doing. You see, I could say in my life that, hey, my relationship with God is based on my devotion time in the morning. It's based on my prayer time in the morning. And it's based on that I need to evangelize three people a week. That could be the legalistic or the law that I place myself underneath. So I get up on Monday morning and I do my Bible time, I do my devotion time, and I don't have time and I don't, I don't evangelize anybody that week. And the end of the week comes out and I look back and it's Sunday again and I go, wait a minute, I, I missed my devotion time on Tuesday. I, I did some evangelism, but I missed my prayer time on Wednesday. How are you doing before the Lord? Well, I'm not, not very good. I got eight out of ten. Does that count? It kind of gives us a standard that we can decide what we're living by. And I think there's a lot of Christians that their relationship with the Lord is based on how they think they're doing before the Lord. And that is a legalistic mentality. If you think the Lord doesn't want anything to do with you because of the way that you've acted or because of the things that you've said or because of the things that you've thought or because of the things that you've done, that's, you're coming to the Lord based on legalism. You've decided what's right. You've decided what's acceptable. And you say, well, if I do these things, then he'll accept me. You see, the other side of that, oh, I didn't finish. Why else would somebody want to come to the Lord under, under legalism? Because you always know where you stand. I know, I know if I've done good on my laws, then I'm good. If I've done bad, I've done bad. I know where I stand. Why else? If I'm keeping my laws, if I'm keeping my rules, I've said it makes you feel good about yourself, doesn't it? You can make, you, you can make yourself feel good about yourself. And Listen, I've done what I'm supposed to do. I've got up every day this week and I've, I've, I've read my Bible and I've prayed. And then you know what happens when you start to feel good about yourself, when God doesn't do something that you think he should do? You find yourself going, Lord, I got up every morning and I prayed and I studied my Bible. Why is this thing happening in my, my life? It shouldn't be happening. That's legalism. You're, you're setting your standard. God, you should be blessing me because I did what you thought, what I think you want. That's where we're trying to approach him underneath that standard of legalism. And lastly, it gives us really the ability, if you take it out far enough, to take credit for our own salvation. I can say, well, I'm, how are you with the Lord? Well, I'm, I'm good. Why? I've done these things. I've accomplished these things. I'm good. I go to church. I go to prayer. I go to went Thursday night study. I go to, you know, I, I, I do X, Y, and Z. That's not, how, that's not why you're okay before the Lord. You see, you can come to church every day for the rest of your life and still not be saved. You can go to Wednesday night study. We don't have Wednesday. Thursday night study. We've had Thursday night for like two years now, and I keep saying Wednesday night. And you can show up at prayer, and you can serve, and you can give money, and you can do all kinds of things, and that doesn't mean somebody's saved. 
Salvation is a condition of your heart. You can approach the Lord if you approach the Lord on those things. But Lord, I did this for you and I did that for you. And he said, I never knew you. I never knew you. I never knew who you were. You did lots of great things, but you didn't do them for me. You did them for you because you set up some false standard in your heart that you thought I would be pleased with. And all I really wanted was you to believe in me. And all I really wanted was, there, was you to understand what my grace was. You see, when I come to the Lord in grace, this is the way that we should come. When we come to the Lord before grace, my salvation is not based on what I've done or how I've lived or how I've spoke or how my attitude was. My salvation is based on what God has done for me through the cross with Jesus Christ. When I come through grace, it's not about what I've done, it's about what he has done. Legalism is man trying to reach up to God on their own abilities. Grace is God reaching down to man, not concerned with what he's doing or how he's been. Grace is free. It's free. It's, 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 it doesn't cost a thing legalism or placing yourself under a law, whether it be the Hebrew law, whether it be a law that you've made up in your own mind, whether it be a law that a church imposes on you, it costs you something. It's burdensome. It's taking something away from you. Churches can become legalistic and they can put something on you. When I was in, in sixth grade, I went to a Baptist church that made me sign a piece of paper that said I would not listen to rock music, I would not go to movies, and I would not dance. If I wanted to advance from 6th grade to 7th grade, I had to sign that piece of paper. There was no, no, no questions about it. All my friends signed it. Go ahead, just, just sign it. Don't worry about it. I had a whole collection of rock music I listened to. What was I going to do with it? Just never listen to it again? But they said, no, from 6th grade to 7th grade, you have to make this decision. And if you don't make this decision, you can't come to this school. I didn't sign it. I said, I'm not signing it. I probably should have signed it and stayed in the private school. Instead, I went to public school, and it was all downhill from there. But I stood and said I wasn't going to sign it because I didn't feel right in my heart. I knew that I couldn't sign a piece of paper that said I'm not going to do these things when I knew full well I was going to do them. And I wasn't, and I didn't think it was right for a church to make me do that. And I didn't sign it. I didn't sign it. I went, like I said, I went on to public school and it was, I got saved years later. Legalism can come from all parts of our, of our, around us. It can come from our churches. It can come from our families. It can come from all kinds of things. I have a tendency to be legalistic with my kids. Guys, have you done your quiet time before the Lord? Have you done your morning devotions? Why not? Get up there and do it. And I have to, wait a minute, it's okay. If they haven't done it, they haven't done it. If it's, if it's just simply legalism, they're going to despise it and not want to do it. But if it comes from the Lord, if they listen and they hear, you know what, I want to do my quiet time with the Lord, then they do it. It becomes a blessing to them. But legalism, what Paul's saying is we think it's going to make us look good before God, but it really is a burden that we can't carry because we cannot even live up to the standards that we place on ourselves. Try it. Test it out this week. Write down five things that you're going to do for God this week and then tell me how you did at the end of the week. Try it. I guarantee that you'll fail. And if you don't fail this week, it won't be long until you fail next week. And if that's the measurement that we use to come before God, we're in trouble we're really in trouble. That's why Paul's spending so much time in the book of Galatians saying it's about grace. It's about grace. And when Paul says, listen, I've been under law like you've never seen. Paul would say, I was the best at keeping the law. 
And I still found myself empty. I didn't get free until I found Jesus Christ, is what he would say. So he goes on here in verse 27, for it is written, and he's going to quote here from the book of Isaiah, chapter 54, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor, for the desolate has many more children than he or than she who has a husband. So what he's speaking of there, he's talking about that uh, the nation Israel is not going to have as many followers as the Gentiles. The nation Israel right now has the Lord, had God. They were the ones appointed by God to represent God to the rest of the world. But now that Christ has died and risen again, there's going to be more Gentile believers than there are Jewish believers. That's what Isaiah is talking about. And then he goes on in verse 28. He says, Now we, brethren, as Isaac, are children of promise. We're the children of promise. This is insulting to to, to a Jewish person. You see, they thought, no, we're children of Isaac. Paul just said, no, you're not. You're children of Ishmael. You're children of the flesh because you're trying to keep the law. He says, those saved by faith in Jesus Christ, they're children of the promise. But as he who was born according to the flesh, then persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, even so it is now. Just like Ishmael persecuted Isaac, the Judaizers are now persecuting you. You see the connection he's making? Just like when Isaac was weaned and they had a party and Ishmael began to persecute him, that's why the Jewish people, the Judaizers, are now coming into the region of Galatia and they're trying to tell you that you need to come under the law. They're persecuting. They're trying to bring you back into bondage. Paul says it's not anything new. It was illustrated to us with the two sons of Abraham. And he goes on. Nevertheless, what does the Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. No different than Abraham cast out Hagar and Ishmael. He says, listen to those people in Galatia. Listen, get rid of this legalistic mindset. Get rid of this law keeping that you have to follow. There's no reason to be underneath of the law again. Do we see that today in our culture? Let me ask you a question. Or let's keep reading. We'll do that. We'll get there in a second. Verse 31. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. Then he picks up in chapter 5 and he says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. Notice who made us free. The liberty that we have is through Jesus Christ. But he says, stand fast. Stand fast. That means keep standing. It means hold your ground. It means do not yield. Stand fast. It's a military term to hold a line, to hold a position to where you would tell a soldier to stand fast, which means you do not back up. You stand on that position. You do not give up ground. You do not yield. And Paul says, that's what we're standing on. We're standing on, the, we're standing on the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're standing fast. We're holding that position. We're holding that line. We will not back up from that. And we're standing faster in the liberty, which is the freedom by which Christ, Christ made us free. And do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Don't be entangled with the yoke of bondage. Paul says... Paul means when you place legalistic requirements on your life, 
you're entangling yourself with a yoke of bondage. You're, it's like taking a burden and putting it around your neck. It's like taking a weight and putting it around, and you can't ever get out from underneath of it. You're stuck there. But when he says this, he's also referring back down. You can turn there if you'd like, but I'll just read it to you. Acts chapter 15 is known as the Jerusalem Council. This was already addressed in the Jerusalem Council. They came to the apostles and said, what do we do? We've got Gentiles that are now coming to Christ. We've got to deal with this problem. And look what Peter stands up in the middle of this council. Acts chapter 15, verse 10. Peter stands up and he says, Now therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Peter said, why are we putting the yoke of the law on them when we couldn't bear it? Our fathers couldn't bear it. Nobody before us could bear it, yet we're trying to now put it around their neck. We're trying to make them bear it. Peter says, that's dumb. That's stupid. That's what he says. Look, he says it nicely. We believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Now, going back to the book of Galatians, please understand Paul's heart here. Paul is not saying that Christians should have no requirements. And Paul is not saying that Christians can just do whatever they want. Because when a Christian understands grace, they don't want to be apart from the Lord. They don't want to partake in sin. They don't want to live a life that's, 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 that's unpleasing to the Lord. It's not a freedom to just live however we want and go, Lord, just forgive me. I got all the grace I need. Because it's been taken to that, 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 that degree. It's been taken to Christians who have said, you know what, I can do whatever I want. I just have to ask for forgiveness and I've got all the grace I need. You don't really understand God. You're missing the point. Because there is, when you do things for the Lord, there's value in that. There's blessing that comes along with that. It really does make a difference. So Paul is telling them, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. Do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Chapter 5, verse 2 in Galatians. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. Paul says, listen, if you go through with this, and apparently there's an indication they haven't done it yet. Apparently they're, they're on the fence on this issue. Paul says, if you go through with this, Christ will profit you nothing. You're giving up Christ and grabbing on to this legalistic law. You're giving up the salvation through grace, and you're going, I'm going to do it myself. I'm going to handle this. You go, no, Rob, they're just saying they're going to be better. They're going to add to it. No, the apostle Paul says, if you do it, Christ profits you nothing. But he doesn't stop there. He says in verse 3, and I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. If you put yourself back under the law, Paul says, Christ's going to profit you nothing. And Paul also says, listen, if you do that, you are now a debtor to keep the whole law. If you decide that you want to keep Jewish law, you're a debtor to keep the whole law. Have you ever, maybe you have some friends and family, Seventh-day Adventists, right? What are they, what's one of their big things? The Sabbath is on what? Saturday. They celebrated on Saturday. Why? Because it was in the Old Testament Sabbath on Saturday. One of the questions I always have. What about the rest of the Sabbath laws? Do you take, a, do you take every seventh year off? 
Do you have a year of Jubilee every 50th year? What about all the things that go along with the Sabbath laws? You know, it's not just one part of it. Paul is saying here in Galatians, if you, if you put yourself under the law, you're under all of the law. What about the dietary laws? So if you're going to stand on the fact that I celebrate the Sabbath on, uh, on Saturday and we go to church on Saturday, you can, you, by placing yourself underneath of that, you're now accepting all of the laws. You don't get to pick and choose what you want to do. You can't just pick, I like this one, I like this one, I like that one. If you're going to place yourself underneath the Jewish laws, you've got all of them, all 613 of them. If you want to know what they are, you can print them out, get a list on the internet. It'll tell you exactly what they are. But that's all of the laws. You can't just pick and choose is what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, listen, by doing one, you're, you're accepting the burden of all the law. You're accepting the burden of everything. And he doesn't stop there. Christ will profit you nothing. Now you have to keep the whole law. And look what he says in verse 4. You have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. Paul says, Christ will profit you nothing. You are now underneath the whole law and you have become literally estranged from Christ. You have fallen from grace. Those are some harsh words. Listen, he's saying, Christ made this sacrifice for you. You can't add to it. Stop thinking that you can. The day that we think that we can add anything to what Christ has done, the day that we can make ourselves look better before the Lord, we've fallen from the very grace that we once accepted. I'm not saying salvation here. I'm saying you're missing the point of grace. You've fallen from it. You've become estranged. You're not, you're not meeting God on his terms. You're trying to meet God on your terms. That's a, always a dangerous place to be. We always come to the Lord on his terms, not on our terms. We always come to the Lord in what he says, in the way that, in the way that he prescribes, not on the way that we think that we should come to him. Paul says it very clearly. If you keep the law, Christ will profit you nothing. If you keep the law, you must now keep the whole law. If you keep the law... You have fallen from grace. You've given up grace back to your own ability to keep the law. And then in verse 5, he says this. For we, we, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. Please don't miss that. He says, for we, through the Spirit, through God's Holy Spirit, I am waiting for righteousness because I can't do it on my own. I can't make myself righteous. I'm waiting for the righteousness through faith. I'm waiting for it. For In verse 6, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. But faith working through love. Paul says, listen, I've come to the point where I can't add anything to my salvation. I know it's through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And you guys are trying to put yourself underneath of these burdens. Have you ever put yourself under a burden for the Lord? Have you ever done that? And you find out it, it weighs a lot. You might do okay for a couple of days, even a couple of weeks, maybe even a couple of months. But how are you doing on it today? Maybe a couple of years ago you set out, and I was going to do these three things. And you find yourself, it doesn't work out that way. Aren't you glad your salvation doesn't depend on how well you did for the law that, you get to make up your own law here. Make it up. You make it up. List, write five things that you want to do for the Lord. You pick it. And you're going to do them for the rest of your life. You can't do it. Just five. You could probably pick one and you couldn't do it. 
unless you made it really easy, something you couldn't reverse, like circumcision, I guess. (laughs) I guess you could do that for the rest of your life. Listen, Christianity, true Christianity is based on freedom, freedom in Christ Jesus. Legalism is based on bondage. You're in bondage to the standard that you set up. True Christianity is based on a promise. It was a promise given to Abraham, I will make you, in your, I'm sorry, in your seed all nations will be blessed. That promise was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Legalism is based on a work of the flesh. It's how well you do at the standard that you set up, that you decide to place yourself under. True Christianity comes from heaven above, comes from Jesus Christ, comes from God himself. Legalism begins here on earth in an effort to please God. Remember it this way. Grace is God reaching down to mankind. Legalism is man trying to reach up to God. True Christianity is the only religion in all of the world where God reaches down to save mankind. Everything else is based on how mankind does before God, whether or not they can live up to a certain standard or not. Abraham, in his mistake, and I'll call it a mistake, and it's been well argued that it was a mistake, took Hagar as a wife and had a child named Ishmael. The result of that is being felt in the Middle East today. It's still going on. It hasn't stopped. Ishmael is still aggravating Isaac. Got it? It's still going on over there. It hasn't changed. It's still there. It will end someday. I promise you. The scriptures tell us that. But in the meantime, where this applies to us, here's what we need to consider. What is my relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ based on? What's it based on? Because in this life, you're going to have sickness. You're going to have loss of loved ones. You're going to have disasters. You're going to have financial problems. You're going to have all kinds of problems. But if my relationship is based on what God has done, none of those things are going to shake me. It doesn't mean they won't be hard, but it won't shake my faith. But if my relationship is based on what I'm doing and the life that I'm living, then I'll find myself looking up at God and saying, God, I thought if I did this for you, then you would treat me better. I thought I deserved X, Y, or Z. Lord, why don't I have X, Y, or Z? I've done this for you. That's a good indication that you're approaching the Lord from a legalistic perspective. Now understand something. I believe you can be saved either way. It's not a condition of salvation. But if you're walking in grace, and if you you mess up, you're able to go before the Lord and say, Lord, forgive me, and you move on. You're able to move on past it. People that are in legalism don't like to see that. We need to get it together. Come on, Christian. Why aren't you up at 4.30 studying the Bible? What are you doing? You You missed church on Thursday night. How come you weren't there on Sunday? You've missed two weeks in a row. Where are you? That's legalism. Put it together. Come on, let's go. But grace says, it's okay. I I had something come up. Or maybe I made a mistake. Whatever, it's okay. Lord, Lord is with me. Forgive me, Lord. And then you can move forward with it. Do you see the difference? Have I painted the picture clear on legalism and grace? So where is it that we stand? Where is it that you stand? When we sing amazing grace, do you sing amazing grace and you say, Lord, thank you for not holding the things that I didn't do? against me? Or can you really realize it's God's grace that reaches down from heaven? 
that sent Christ to the cross. Can we really understand that? And if not, I hope this morning that our eyes are open just a little bit more to salvation comes through grace alone. As we proceed in the next chapters, 5 and 6, through the book of Galatians, like I said, in chapter 1 and 2 was Paul's experience with grace. Chapters 3 and 4 are his doctrinal positions for his belief in grace. And chapter 5 and 6 is going to show us what grace looks like in the life of a believer. So the last two chapters are going to be very, very uh, applicable to your life and mine as we study. I hope you'll join me next week as we continue in chapter 5, verse 7. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, sometimes these truths can be difficult to understand. But Lord, I pray this morning that I've painted a picture of legalism and grace clearly. I pray that each person here would understand that you reach down for us. It's not our job. It's not, our, it's not in our ability to make ourselves pleasing to you, Father. Lord, the only thing that we can offer you is our faith and our obedience. You don't need, you don't need anything else from us. Lord, I thank you that you've given us this letter to the churches in Galatia. And I pray that we'd be able to apply it to our life as well. Lord, we stand now to worship you in grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.